We've been unpacking this theology of discipleship and its practice. And, uh, and we continue to do so. And, and our first two weeks, we're kind of really wrestling with what is unique and transferable in the life of Jesus. Because he clearly expects a whole bunch of stuff. And in a sense, we recognize his ministry is unique. I, I mean, sorry, his identity is unique. His ministry is transferable. Uh, and in the middle is something that unlocks his ministry, which is his atonement, which is completely unique. Yet he transfers all its credit to us. So although it's completely unique in its accomplishment, it is transferable in its benefit. I didn't, say, I didn't write that in my notes. I've just said it now. I turn to somebody so we don't forget it. The atonement is unique in its accomplishment, but transferable in its benefit. Tell them, tell them. It's unique in its accomplishment. It's transferable in its benefit. Okay. And before I forget, happy Valentine's Day for Friday. I hope it was a good one. I mean that. I hope we're finding love. Um, I, I heard uh, many years ago a story of a little boy called Chad. Because we, we step into looking at the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of the whole gospel is love. The fruit of love. So we've, we've looked at reproducing Jesus, walking as he did. And then the heart of grace. And now for the next couple of weeks we're going to look um, at the fruit of love. One of the most supreme things that the gospel begins to produce the moment we start following Jesus. I had a little uh, story of a boy named Chad who heard from his school teacher about Valentine's Day and this idea of making cards for people you love. So he went home and asked his mom to take him to the shop and he spent all his pocket money buying reams and reams of paper and glitter and everything else. And she said, who on earth is this lucky girl? And he said, no, no, no. And he made cards for you know, he, he, he sat down and he made a little list and, and, and he wanted to give a card to every child in his class because he loved his class. But he was one of the quietest, most shy kids in the whole class. And his mom was thinking as he spent like the whole week in the lead up to Valentine's, it's just so unfair. He doesn't say boo to anything. And how many other children are going to see him? And so she was kind of, you know, as the day came and he headed off to school, her concern grew, her heart sank when she went to fetch him because as he was coming, she heard him say, not a one, not a one, not a one, not one. And she was kind of thinking just how unfair and cruel the world can be when he saw his mom and his face lifted up and it beamed and he said, Mom, I didn't forget one of them. You've seen some ways of seeing the world. Ethical and theological liberalism makes love all about what we get. Because we're thoroughly at the center. Be true to yourself. Is what their poets will tell you. Moralism defines love as duty. That it must be earned. Sentimentalism reduces love's to feelings that we feel entitled to, but produces no fruit. Jesus taught that true love is known and revealed by the joyful giving of ourselves for the sake of others. True love is known and revealed by the joyful giving of ourselves 
for the sake of others. And so he says in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1b, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out with us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author or pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There was joy that took him to the cross. Scorning its shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the Jesus we follow, who in the joyful giving of himself, did so for the sake of others. Now we continue, and I want to unpack a little bit, but maybe I just want to ask, out of the, the daily readings, anybody have an aha moment this week? Just like, man, that never saw it that way before, or um, just, just an aha moment that's been kind of settling for you out of last week or during the readings that were part of this week. Anybody kind of just going, I like that. The readings are online, so you can go look. Um, a whole bunch of you said to me the sermon last week, and I promise you the sermon is just a tiny little package compared to what waits for you in, in, in those readings. We want to go to Galatians chapter 5. And in a sense, this is just one of the readings from the week. Um, and the way I'm working the series is to try and pull the content together, but it's, it's, it's way too much. So I'm choosing a passage that says as much in that topic as possible and then trying to just nail that passage uh, and do a decent job of preaching it. So Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13 you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Now, the flesh is not some sinister third force. The flesh is you doing whatever you want. Um, it, it, the flesh is just, you know, when used in this sense in Scripture, it's me. It's just me without reference to anybody else. It's the self-seeking me. Just listening to whatever the me in me demands. Does that make sense? It's just switching off to the world around and putting myself in the very center. That's called the flesh. Um, it does get described as a sinful nature because when you want to just live for yourself and self-seeking, it just presents a huge opportunity to sin and in fact, is the state in which we are most um, cooperative with the enemy. We're actually giving him massive mileage. So do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but rather serve one another humbly in love. We just heard something of that. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself, from Leviticus 19, 18. But if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit. Funny enough, the original is walk by the Spirit. So we to walk as Jesus did, who walked by the Spirit. We to live as Jesus did, who lived by the Spirit. We've been given the same engine as that which energized Jesus. Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
for the flesh. This, this, this self-centered you desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, literally at war with one another, so that you do so that you are not to do whatever you want. A bit of debate on the translation there, whether it's so that you do what you do not want or so that you're not to do whatever you want. I like this particular one because the flesh is just doing whatever I want. But when the flesh and the spirit are at war with each other, it's, it's this thing you're not to do because you want to do what the spirit of Jesus wants to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, which means excess, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this, not those who tempted to do this, but those who choose this as their actions and life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Or else, <laughs> the law completely transcends these things. For those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Doing whatever you want. For since we walk by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. So that command makes a bit more sense to use the literal but let's not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. So it's entirely by sovereign design that I happen to be preaching on love on the week of Valentine's. Um, I'm just not that clever to put it all together. But I need to tell you that <laughs> there's so much power in love. Love moves things. Love changes things. Love realigns things, restores things. God is love. 1 John 4. His very nature and essence is pure love and undiminished goodness. Anyone who tells you that God's got a dark side has a dark side. And the reality is Jesus and love go hand in glove. They just are absolutely inseparable. The actions of love are the actions of Jesus. The actions of Jesus are the actions of love. And we cannot walk as Jesus did, and we cannot hope to walk as Jesus did without setting our hearts on love. We cannot produce His love without His Spirit. We really do need the Spirit of Jesus. But it takes more than a decision. Our reading is very clear. It takes a fight. So my sermon title this morning, as you can see on the screen, which I didn't prepare for load shedding's sake, was Love is Worth Fighting For. Love is worth fighting for. And, and this passage, rather than having little box themes that we were able to go section one, two, and three, 
it, it's more like a cord in which there are different color strands. And so there's just several strands that are woven in and that recur throughout our reading. Actually, they've been recurring throughout the whole epistle. Uh, and I'm just going to try and sort of like point to the strands. Their relationship to each other is worth exploring. Their individual truth is amazing. But at the end of the day, you see that we stand at, as it were, this dynamic, ever-present crossroads in which you're going to decide whether or not you're going to walk in the flesh. In other words, just do what you want. That's all it means. I'm just going to do what I want. Or you're going to walk in the Spirit. You're going to see what He wants, and you're going to do what He wants. And the thing is, I can get it right now, and five minutes later, I'm still facing that same ever-present crossroads. Now, the grand thing is, is if I lose focus, stop listening, and I start walking in another spirit, five minutes later, I can realize I'm off the track, and I can pick up again and get back on track. The crossroads is with you all the time. That means the crossroads is before you right now. We live in this place, uh, this intersection, where these two things intersect and actually compete in our lives. So the first theme that I want to just kind of point you to in the text is that love fulfills and surpasses the law. It says the entire law, verse 14, is fulfilled in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus believed deeply that he could change our hearts. He believed that he was the personal fulfillment and of the promise that came in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27, in which the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. There isn't a, div a divide. I know that there are places in scriptures where it's in a sense you, you're having to go um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, for example. There's this careful navigating of the inadequacies of the law. But we need to be very clear that we are not rejecting the, the law of God in and of itself as, if, as though, even though we're not under law, what the law is, represents is inadequate uh, or no, is uh, is obsolete. The, what the law represents, namely the goodness of God, is never going to be obsolete. And when we looked at moralism as a way of earning our way to God, rejecting moralism does not mean that we reject the law of God. The grace that Jesus releases in us enables us to do far more than not just do no wrong, as in keep the rules. The grace Jesus releases unlocks deep, selfless love. I mean, who of us is going to walk around patting ourselves on the back just because we haven't murdered somebody? Haven't stolen something? Haven't perjured ourselves in the last week? As though keeping the law is this amazing thing. Keeping the law is just restraining rampant evil. Jesus says that anyone who wants to take away even a jot or tittle of the law 
is in serious trouble. And then he says this, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, which, and they were rigorous in keeping these rules, unless you get far beyond that, you surpass it, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there is a radiant goodness that God wants to release in our lives. And not just can I keep myself from evil. There isn't time to unpack it all, but it, it helps me sometimes to think of a circle. And some people want to think of that circle. And inside that circle, you put all the things that are right. And then everything else outside that circle is wrong. And some people have a very small circle of the stuff they can do that is right. The moralists and the liberals have a very big circle of the things that is right. But no matter the size of your circle, most people then pride themselves on being able to say that they have stayed inside the circle. And their life, if you have to look at their decisions, their budgets, their relationships, etc., kind of represents being on the edge of the circle. My problem with it is this, that if you're thinking this is what is right and that is what is wrong and I'm living over there, how far can I go with my money before I'm being unrighteous? How far can I go in sex before I am falling into sin? How far can I go in pride or self-indulgence or even in just, you know, I don't know, in yeah, just indulgent holidays, for example. How far can I go before I am falling into sin? And our mindset is actually the good life is out there. We believe the good life is on the other side. And so we want to live as close to the boundary of righteousness instead of as close to the center. You see, when you're in love with the one who is at the very center, whose essence is love and goodness, you don't want to be on some boundary. You want to be as close to his heart as you possibly can get. You see, the strict Pharisee who observed all that stuff, even if he had a very small circle that he limited himself to, that was his righteousness. But his heart actually believed that pleasure was on the other side of the line. And that's why he camped on the line. For the lover of Jesus, your delight will be to get as close to the very center. Who cares about the line? You effortlessly are inside the line because your pursuit and your hunger and your loving um, and your love is for the one who is at the very center. Does that make sense? So love effortlessly surpasses the law. We're not walking around priding ourselves that we haven't slept around. We're wondering how we can enrich marriages, deepen our own and strengthen those around us. We're not just thinking, how can I increase my pile of stuff? How can I use the resources God has given me to advance the kingdom? We're not just thinking, how can I not tell a lie? We're thinking, how can my words build people up and call them to things that are noble and honorable and good? How can I speak life? What a horribly low bar to just fulfill the law. The scary thing is, is that we haven't even managed that. Jesus shows us on the Sermon on the Mount because inside the law is the intent of the law, which is purity and the value of life and the value of stewardship, etc. 
So love fulfills and surpasses the law. You get love right. You don't need a bunch of rules. Quite frankly, you no longer under the law is what the passage is saying. And secondly, and my apologies to those who might find this difficult, but I need to tell you that love is a hell of a fight. You can quote me on that. You're fighting hell, and it's a fight to the death. And as the character Lord Farquhar said in Shrek, some of you may die, but that is a sacrifice that I am prepared to make. <laughs> Actually, if you go after love, all of you will die. Because your flesh has to die. You cannot have that thing that demands its own way and give yourself in love for others. Your natural wants now, here's the crazy thing. Your flesh wants all the benefits of love. It demands it, in fact. All its passions and desires. But your flesh does not want to be loving. Your flesh wants the benefits of love, but it does not want to become loving. Nothing serves the devil more than a person living by this old power. It's a hell of a fight. And so you have to kind of confront it. To seek the love of Jesus is to go to war with your flesh. Call it spiritual warfare. Call it inner healing, because that is what it's true. Call it sanctification. Call it all of the above. Love must go to war. And the first power it must defeat and crucify, crucify is what the text says, is my flesh. You see, to be self-seeking is to be driven by fear. The love of self is fed by fear. Will I be provided for? Will I be recognized? Will, will people speak well of me? Will I win? Will I, etc. And so, to be self-seeking is to be driven by fear. And fear is the root that feeds all the acts of the flesh. Even immorality or greed. It's the fear that you won't find love in a righteous way that leads you to entertain unrighteous love. It's the fear that you won't be provided for in a righteous way that leads you to take on unrighteous provision. And you feel you cannot trust God to be God, and so you need to take over his place. Listen to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made complete in love. You've got to let that driver of fear get dealt with. It has to die. And we have to open our hearts to grace, to let Jesus invade and deal with the dark stuff. And a picture came to me as I was preparing the reality of it is because it says, just after that beautiful description of the fruit of the Spirit, that those 
who are in the Spirit have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When you open yourself to love and let Jesus wage war for you, he will lead you to Calvary. And he will press on your head a crown of thorns called conviction and confession. And your thoughts will pierce you when you begin to see your flesh through the eyes of Jesus. And he will equip you with the nails of repentance and the hammer of forgiveness. And together with him, in him, you will crucify your old self-seeking life with its passions and desires. And it will feel like death. And as you breathe your last, as you humor your last, as you... Jesus prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That was a beautiful spirit. You're also surrendering your old spirit in the act of crucifixion. And as you do so, your spirit, once driven by fear, is resurrected to new life. And it is carried by love. And you will not find a way to change your life that does not go to a place where you are crowned with the thorns of conviction and confession. And where you do not take up the nails and the hammer of forgiveness and repentance and work your way through crucifying your old self. Now the interesting thing is, is that text says that this crucifying is both is a, is a past tense, but clearly from elsewhere in Scripture, we know it's an ongoing thing as well. We have crucified it, and yet we have to keep making sure it stays dead. So what we are done, what, what happens for us is we are awakened to, attentive to, the Spirit. And the life of Jesus. So the third thing is, is that the spirit of Jesus lives in you and will naturally produce his fruit. Fruit is not something, I don't know if you've ever seen a fig tree straining, you know, trying to get that fruit. It's just got to be in the right condition. It just has to have the right DNA and it will produce the stuff. Fruit is not something that you obtain directly. It's only obtained indirectly. You plant the right tree, give it the right soil, get the right environment, and the fruit, in a sense, all by itself will show up. And so the fruit is what only the Spirit can ever give you. And it's what you've been wanting all along. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-leadership and control. That's what the Holy Spirit produces for you, in you, through you. And funny enough, that's the stuff you've wanted all along. 
That's the stuff you've wanted all along. You see, your flesh tells you the lie. The enemy tells you the lie that you have to fight God to get what you've wanted. But you've actually got to fight your flesh to get what you've wanted all along. So here's an important question. <clears throat> I really struggled with this as I was preparing and coming into church. How fast was Holy Spirit walking when you came to church this morning? You know, we're supposed to walk with him. We're supposed to just walk. We're supposed to, like, how, how fast was he walking when you came to church this morning? Were you ahead of him? Were you behind him? Was he more keen to be here than you were? Like, 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 what was the, the inner conversation that was going on between you? Just, Hillary will be fine. Don't worry about it. I mean, live by the Spirit literally means keep in step. Match your stride. How fast was he walking? I found myself walking places today where the Holy Spirit wasn't going. And we're trying to get that jolly TV linked up, and it wouldn't link up, and I was running around like a headless chicken, and I had to go, stop, 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 because the Spirit of Jesus is not in this worried, anxious space. And, and if, I'm, if I'm attentive to His pace... If I'm attentive to his direction, he was walking one way, I was walking another. I was at a crossroads and I faced the choice. What excited him today? What delighted him today? What grieved him? You see, we want our lives to be so attentive as we match his direction and pace that the journey and the goal is effortlessly reached because I keep my eye on Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. If I want that love, if I want that joy, if I want that peace, if I want that self-leadership, Holy Spirit is the one I need. He's the one I need. In Jesus, I die at the cross and the grace of the Holy Spirit to partner with my spirit. It doesn't take the place of my spirit, but that essence of me which is made by God, for God, to relate to God and integrate every other aspect of my created being into this place of life. So what do we discover for our theology of discipleship? That it's not about self-help. It's not about self-improvement. It's not about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and just trying harder, although effort will be required. Releasing love is supremely about releasing the Spirit of Jesus. Finding love is increasingly about finding the Spirit of Jesus. And driving out fear is about finding the Spirit of Jesus. And emptying myself of self-seeking and self-ambition is not to be found in multiple cute stories in which I, I see a picture but I cannot attain it. 
you understand that this is the fruit of the Spirit. The moment you see that picture for something true and beautiful and good and noble and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy, you know how to go for it. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. More of you. More of you. More of you. Let me wrap up. In Jesus, death always precedes life. Jesus, death always precedes life. But in Jesus, we are no longer afraid to die. We know the new life is far, far better. I mean, uh, seriously, how many of you know that? I, I have walked with Jesus now for nearly, way too long, nearly 40 years. And I know the new life is way, way better. So the other day in devotions, Bevan was taking us. Bevan sends his regards. He's at the induction of a colleague who is out in Worcester. It was a bit hard to do both. And, uh, and, and so he was leading us, in the, and he was talking about this incredible capacity we have to call to mind something, to, to think and remember and to bring into our mind and therefore ultimately before our spirit something, truth. A story. We can, we can take an action, even one that happened to somebody else, and we can call it to mind. So we can think of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, and we can call it to mind, and we can become present in that conversation, and we can hear Jesus speak to us just as much as he spoke to Nicodemus. That's incredible. We have this faculty to call stuff to mind. And as he was talking about this faculty and this ability not just to hear things, but also to remember things so that I can go back to the moments in which God was at work in my life, call that to mind, and re-enter its grace and its power. And that's staggering. I suddenly had this random thought. I can't remember if or Bevan threw it on the table or something. But if I'm calling stuff to mind, and I'm now minding it, What would I, at 50 plus a lot, say to myself in a letter to my 20-year-old self? What would I say to my 20-year-old self? I don't know if you've ever gone that deep, you know. Looking back, what would I say? I know this. I would tell myself to deal with those needles, those thin thorn pricks of conviction that seemingly at the time were sitting so light on my head. I mean, I was coping and getting by, seemingly okay, not dealing with lust, not dealing with sexism, not dealing with competitiveness and anger. Not dealing with resentment and rage. Not dealing with my pride or my ego. Because I was getting away with it. Seemingly. Okay, I obviously wasn't married. You can only get away with that stuff if you're not married. I'll never forget Lindsay talking about driving in the car and losing his temper with another driver. And then suddenly the Holy Spirit said to him, What was that? 
And then Lindsay soberly looked at us and said, you know, the Holy Spirit sounds a lot like my wife. (laughs) 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 I know the feeling, bro. What would I say to my 20-year-old self? Looking at those niggles, those pricks, you know, later those became deep, deep things. Because I left them. I left them to lie and steal and destroy. What would I say to my 20-year-old self? I'd say go to the cross soon. Find the nail. Get the hammer. Crucify the flesh. Go to the cross sooner. The pain you save and the new life you receive is totally worth what feels like a devastating surrender. There's so much more we could say. The devil's lies that you have to fight God to get the life you want. You don't. God's taken up the fight for you. And in love, he offers that to you. So listen quicker to the voice that calls you to be brave. Listen sooner to the voice that calls you to be selfless. And to be deeply, deeply loving. Love is worth fighting for.